I'm Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Nermeen Alam of Rutgers University. She's the author of a new book, Women in the Egyptian Revolution, Engagement and Activism During the 2011 Arab Uprisings, which was published this year by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Nermeen got her PhD at the University of Alberta, and she was recently a postdoc, uh, postdoctoral fellow at Princeton. Uh, Nermeen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't you tell us uh, about your book? Why did you write this book about women in the Egyptian Revolution? And what do you think the major unique contributions of, of this book are? Well, the Egyptian uprising was unfolding around the same time that I was preparing for my comprehensive exam. And it was a quite astounding experience um, to read and digest theories, um, some of which I was familiar with and others that I was um, newly engaging with, and then turn around instantly and think about them in terms of the unfolding um, historical moment. It is, it is astounding on uh, many fronts, though it also have its own set of limitations, which I do talk about uh, briefly in the book. Uh, so I was so as I was reading uh, the different theories of social movements and, and women's engagement in uh, them and women's engagement in uh, different historical uh, junctures that does have a nationalist flavor uh, to them, uh, I came across the same story over and over again, uh, which is uh, women uh, participate in these historical junctures uh, and played an important role in their uh, in these moments, in these struggles, and gender issues is not there. Gender issues were not there uh, in these um, moments. And by the end of these episodes of contention, women were encouraged to uh, go back to the home and hearth, in a sense. And uh, the gender outcomes were often, um, to say at best, were mixed. And this story was true, but it was incomplete. Um, it, was it was incomplete in the sense that it leaves some readers to think that women must have been coerced or silenced or that they were passive for uh, not voicing explicitly gender issues and women's rights demands. And there I was witnessing a similar uh, story in front of my eyes. Uh, but the difference is that I knew some of these women who were uh, participating and they were not uh, explicitly calling for women's right too, but they definitely did not in any way, shape, or form fit within uh, the, the, the definition or the category of the silent, passive, or coerced female uh, subject. So the question thus becomes, okay, what is at play then? Um, how can we understand the absence of gender issues? How can we understand the absence of women's right uh, demands from women's framing of their engagement? Because women were very present in the protests and they were actively involved. Indeed. It's just how they were presenting themselves, which you found so surprising. Yes, and which, um, well, it wasn't surprising in the sense that in the literature, it is, it always occurred that mm -hmm. uh, gender issues does not figure squarely and women's right demand does not figure um, squarely in the initial phase of the uprising or in the initial phase of uh, the political uh, struggles and movement. 
So I felt that, okay, so what is at play? How can we understand that without erasing their agency and their voices? Because they were very much present. But women's right demand was not very much present. So why is that the case? And how can we understand that without shoving it off to, oh, they were silenced by their fellow uh, colleagues, oh, they were um, coerced into uh, not voicing their demands. No, they made a decision. But how can we understand this decision uh, while uh, squarely locating and focusing on their um, voices and their stories? And so what's fascinating about about the book, just the way it's written, is how well you interweave uh, the people you've talked to, the interviews, the voices of these women with this very serious theoretical engagement. And how did you approach this methodologically and in terms of uh, your experience and what you were viewing there on the ground versus what you had been led to expect by the theories you were working with? It was it was a process. Uh, in the sense that, in, and my field work was divided into several trips, and I think that in a way helped me to have a more um, serious and critical conversation with the theories that I was engaging with, and uh, to make sure that I am um, open up, opening up a space for women's voices and experiences to, uh, in a sense, challenge the theory sometimes, and even to refute some of the arguments while using some of its uh, insights. So I think it, is be, it, it, it was, again, it was a process. Uh, the fact that um, the theory was in conversation with the participants rather than trying to categorize them or uh, rather than trying to group them under um, certain assumptions that the theories um, uh, say or um, claim. Um, the field work, I was very fortunate to uh, receive funding from Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and uh, the IDRC, the International Research Development Center uh, in Canada, which allowed me to go back and forth and uh, to be able to, in a sense, the picture that emerges from the field, I take it back to the theories and then uh, accordingly uh, work with the theories. So one of the things which is very interesting about that then is what comes out is the very strategic way that many of these women uh, you know, approached their own framing of their activism and how you show how they thought about how their rhetoric or their positioning would you know, intersect with local cultural norms and with Western expectations. So tell us about that, about those framing moves and how women tried to position themselves within within the uprising, within the revolution, and the multiple audiences with whom they were engaging? I think it wasn't only women groups who were trying to speak to and to communicate with different audience. Um, the Egyptian uprising and before it, the, the uprising in Tunis, um, they, they were all communicating to Western audience and at the same time trying to resonate with um, the, the, the local um, context. And for Egypt, it was also very important because, and I talk about this in the book, how the decertification of the regime by the Western powers and by the U.S. was an important um, aim and was an important objective. It was, an important, it was important to um, 
prove that the uprising has succeeded or that the uprising can succeed to achieve this, to decertificate the regime of mm-hmm. uh, Mubarak uh, and to, um, in a sense, uh, communicate with uh, the U.S. and to communicate with the Western audience, to communicate this message to the Western audience and uh, particularly to uh, the U.S. But at the same time, the question becomes, how can you construct a frame that is able to communicate with the West and at the same time resonate with the local culture, resonate with the local context. And this is particularly important for women, for women groups. So while all groups communicate to both audience, but for women's groups specifically, it it gets interesting because how do you communicate your demands without being seen as an agent of the West or the the, the blinded uh, feminists. And I think that did play out in the uprising in the way that um, women aligned themselves with um, what I what I call in the book as the nationalist discourse. And that's not all that's not all new. Uh, this has been seen in 1919 uh, uprising in Egypt where again the women did lead the uh, national struggles, but as soon as they started to uh, demand women's rights and establish those transnational connections, they were deemed as less patriotic in a sense, and uh, they were even excluded completely from the political process. So I mean it is the, the frames that participants use and that women's group used in those episodes of contention, they are the function of um, historical framings and historical legacies, they are done under the shadow of the past in a sense, but they are also a function of um, the moment. What is the message that we need to communicate in uh, the moment and in the case of Egypt, because I think that um, there was a need to decertificate the regime and to communicate that the regime has been decertificated by um, Western powers. The book focuses very specifically on those 18 days, on the revolution and, uh, and Tahrir. And, uh, and and so this is, in a sense, uh, this moment where, well, of, of a breaking moment or something which is uh, really, truly exceptional. And um, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you saw or heard from, from your interlocutors as they navigated that unique moment in terms of uh, their, their, their various roles as women, as activists, with a feminist discourse, a nationalist discourse. Mm-hmm. What are some of the most interesting things that you found um, which informed how you wrote the book? So while the focus is on the, the 18 days of the uprising, um, because, again, it's, it is during those 18 days that we often we, we do not find the uh, women's rights demands figuring squarely in uh, the discourse or in uh, the agenda. So while the focus is on the 18 days, however, in order to understand those 18 days, and, and I talk about this in the book, um, you have to build on the past and also reflect on the present in order to be able to understand the, the specific um, episode. Um, but one of the th- one of the things that I think it, 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 it challenged me when I was writing, and and because of it, I think I had to think more critically about uh, the arguments that I'm making and the assumptions that I am approaching the field with is the emphasis on 
the solidarity and equality during the Eileen days. And it is the same activists who were talking, the same participants who were talking about the equality and the solidarity of the 18 days were the same activists who were agonizing over the turn of events following the 18 days. They were the same activists who participated a few weeks later in the International Women's Day and were chased and were harassed by the public. So how do you reconcile this? How do you reconcile that um, during the 18 days, um, they, they described how they were, you know, they, they slept on the square, uh, they slept in the square um, that, um, I remember one of the participants, she was talking about how she, she took a, um, a drum and she was drumming in the square and no, and no one was criticizing her. Uh, although um, when she was approaching the square, people would, would mock her, right? Um, but, but how the square turned into, um, it, it was a space on, of its own uh, but this space, it was temporally and, and spatially limited. If you went outside of the square, it, it wasn't the same. And uh, as soon as this was done, uh, inequalities and discrimination resurfaced. So how do you understand that? How, how do you use a vocabulary um, to talk about this and to understand it while at the same time, while at the same time reconciling the fact that soon after the uprising, those inequalities and discriminations uh, resurfaced uh, as soon as some groups started demanding for their rights. Now, one thing which is so interesting is that you, you have this a number of analyses throughout the book of frames that could cut in either direction. They might seem empowering, but at the same time be disempowering. Or they might seem positive as you know something you know a new way of talking about women, which is positive, but then there's a downside to it as well. Um, and you know, I, I was thinking of like the women as fully equal partners, or uh, this idea of you know kind of trying to navigate feminism and you know be feminist without using the word feminism. So could you talk a little bit about that and some of those complexities of the frames that you identified um, and that you talk about in the book um, and kind of the double-edged nature of them that these women were trying to navigate? Yes, yeah, and, I, and you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's the, and I, I call it the, the, the non-feminist disclosure that although in my so in my uh, letter of uh, intent my letter of introduction i didn't use the word feminist at all it was an oral history uh, project where i wanted to document women's engagement and participation um, and however i would speak with um, activists who um, they, they would make the point to uh, right from the beginning of the interview to tell me, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be helpful or not because I'm, I'm not a feminist. And funny enough, uh, ironic enough, many of the work, many of the activism that they were carrying out, it was feminist in nature, like um, uh, documenting uh, the, the music and musical performances in the south of Egypt, um, working in poverty uh, among women. Like, these are, um, these, these fits within the definition of uh, feminist, but it goes to show you, uh, I think, how the the, the, the feminist, the, the, the F word in Egypt, how it is um, perceived uh, among uh, the wider population, and how at this moment it was perceived as well, how it was perceived as something that it could be alien, um, and not only that, it is something that is associated with 
the regime. It is associated with the old regime of Mubarak. So uh, we need to distance ourselves from it. And I'm not saying that everyone was the same, but I mean, but I'm saying that uh, especially those who were um, who, who whose participation in the uprising was their first um, episode of political engagement. Uh, there was there was this there was this need to distance themselves from uh, defining their work as feminist and rather and uh, as if by defining it as feminist it is it is limiting the scope limiting the utility of uh, what uh, they are doing so I've noticed that and I, and but it's not the same and I think um, three years down the road uh, many of those initiatives who started as defining themselves as non-feminist actually. Uh, they turned around and uh, they had a very uh, explicit feminist agenda for the kind of work that uh, they are doing, which is a function, I think, of um, the uprising and what happened after. Uh, so participating, for example, in anti-sexual harassment uh, campaign, um, just get it, being close to the many problems that face um, women in the public space and in the private space in Egypt. I think it, 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 it enhanced, it was, a, it was a form of awareness. It raised awareness about uh, what is missing and what needs uh, to be done. On the, the question of uh, sexual harassment, you have a very interesting discussion in the book about how to think about the resurgence of, the, of, of attacks on women and sexual harassment. And, and I'm curious what you were hearing from the people you were interviewing and the like on this question of was this the reemergence of sexual harassment? Was this simply just Tahrir Square suspended all the rules and then after that things went back to normal? Or was it that this was actually, as I think you suggest, mm -hmm. kind of a, a, a conscious strategy on the part of the regime or of somebody mm -hmm. to kind of make public space unsafe again and to a, to you know unleash these this wave of sexual harassment as part of you know, counter-revolution, basically. Um, I think there's different ways of thinking about it, and they both emerge from the mm -hmm. book. And I'm curious, you know, how, how do you think about this now after having, you know, after thought about this and yeah. written so much about it? I, I, I think it's all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it is a function of um, how the discourse of women's rights was closely associated with the regime in power, and once the regime was not longer in power, uh, it was like an open field. I mean, you know, yeah, it's 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 not a right anymore because, and basically, it wasn't a right. If 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 an agenda is associated with the regime, it turns into just a grant rather than an entitlement. But also, from what I heard, like many believe that no, that was a deliberate tool by the regime in power at that moment, which is the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, to uh, just to deter women not to participate and to embarrass the movement at large. Um, and that's not new, like using sexual harassment uh, to embarrass the movement, to embarrass opposition, to deter participants. It, it was the same at the time of Mubarak as well in 2005. Um, so it's, it's not new. Uh, it's something that is used also in wars and in conflicts, um, the, the, the sexual violence against women. Um, and even on, like on regular basis, like sexual harassment, it was an epidemic in Egypt in a sense. Um, but it's the scale, I think, that changed during after the uprising. 
and it's the ways in which the, it was carried out, uh, the way in which it was organized, having a circle uh, to prevent people from uh, rescuing uh, the survivor. Um, the, the, the scale and the organization, I think, what really um, causes the question or what really raises the suspicion that it is, it was something that was deliberate, it was something that was uh, organized, but that doesn't mean that every, all the incidents was carried out by organized groups. I think also the, the, the public tone during this time that wasn't very, um, that wasn't very respectful of women in a sense, that wasn't very, that wasn't, that didn't openly advocate for women's rights. I think it also uh, contributed to this. So besides having organized group, uh, I think that there was also something on the ground where just by walking on the streets, there was um, less protection in a sense because the public message and the public tone was not one that was um, uh, very respectful for women and, and, and their rights. So one one last question then. Um, there have been a lot of books, a lot of articles, a tremendous amount that has been produced and written about uh, the Egyptian Revolution. And so, you know, what what do you think is the the most important thing that your book contributes? That why so, why somebody who already knows a lot about this, why should they read your book? What will they get out of it that they haven't previously uh, known about the revolution? Again, going back to the incomplete story, that the true story that yes, women participate. We don't necessarily, uh, we don't call for women's rights at the initial phase of the uprising, but that doesn't mean that we were passive or coerced or silenced. Um, so I think an understanding why that happened, like we know that this happened, we know that women participate very forcefully. They are very present during this moment, but the question that remains is. Why can't we find uh, women's rights? Why can't why women's rights was not demanded was not voiced? So, why this is the case? Understanding why this is the case, I think in uh, so doing we open up a space in our uh, theories and in our uh, literature for women's specific experiences and uh, their voices. And you know we do that while emphasizing the many um, trenches and fortifications, uh, Lauren and Gramsci's. Uh, vocabulary that surrounds women's activism in uh, the Middle East and North Africa. And I think, and, and finally, it, it encourages us to expand the contours of our theories to include gender structures that does limit and that does uh, sanction certain ways of activism and make it, uh, you know, wholly unimaginable while allowing other forms uh, of activism to uh, become Think of it, and I think it, it, it's it, in, in light of the, of the turn of events in um, Egypt, it is easy to look back at women's engagement uh, with um, disappointment. Um, rather, in my book, I, I try to uh, examine their engagement with an eye to um, defeating their agency rather than their their plight, in uh, a sense, which which has not been always easy. Um, but I mean, it's. Um, it's an oral history project. It documents their participation. But at the same time, it documents it while situating it within the conventional and the contentious politics uh, in Egypt. And thus, it tells the, the complete story rather than an incomplete one. 
Wonderful. Uh, thank you. We've been speaking with Nermeen Alam of Rutgers University about her wonderful new book, uh, Women in the Egyptian Revolution, just published by Cambridge University Press. And um, Nermeen, thank you for joining us. Thank you.